Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that these are not just words on a page, but you proclaim that this is your very breath, God-breathed inspiration. And so we pray, Lord, as we read, as we reflect this morning, that these words would have a touch of your grace upon them. Lord, that you would indeed help us to cast our mind and our attention to the cross, to Calvary, remembering what it is that you accomplished there and the price that you paid for us. And through the power of your spirit, may our hearts be open and our ears inclined towards you to hear what it is that you'd say to each and every one of us this morning. And we pray that in your wonderful name. Amen. Well, let's grab our Bibles together and we're going to go to a somewhat different passage. I'm sorry if that's a little bit disappointing and you were really hoping to read out of the Gospels, but I'd love to take us some 600 plus years earlier and read what is one of the most incredible prophetic scriptures and just scriptures in general that you will find anywhere in the Old Testament. And this is a passage as Isaiah prophesies the coming Messiah and what it is that he would accomplish. I know kids, you're in with us, so you can listen along. And I want you to think about who it is that Isaiah is prophesying and proclaiming about. And if you're good Sunday school students, you know already the answer is always Jesus. Yes, it's already Jesus. But play along. And if you want to even just close your eyes and just allow this reality of this prophetic scripture, one I'm sure that we're familiar with, but just to have a weight and a significance in our heart and lives this morning, thinking, what is it that Isaiah was seeing as through the inspiration of the Spirit? He pens these words. It's Isaiah 53. He says this, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Excuse me. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as from one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, but surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Excuse me. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is an incredible passage, incredibly powerful and incredibly important. In fact, there's a a theologian, a scholar by the name of Mike Brown, who puts this particular passage as his favorite scripture in all of the Bible. And he is a Messianic Jew. He's a Jewish believer in Christ. And he's got many videos on his website of using this passage to evangelize Jewish people. Some incredible accounts where he'll say to them, you know, can I show you Jesus in the Jewish scriptures? I'll say, well, no, it's, it's not in there. And he'll read them this passage. And in disbelief, they'll respond. There's a number of these accounts saying, well, there's no way that could possibly be in the Bible. Obviously, the Christians have added that after the fact, which, of course, is easily disproven because we have the, the Quran or the Dead Sea Scrolls with a nearly complete intact scroll of Isaiah. It is an incredible passage, 600 years before Christ even came on the scene, the Lord prophesies and proclaims who this Messiah would be and what he would accomplish, how it would be accomplished. And there's two things that stand out central as I read these scriptures, as I've read them and pondered them this week, even as we read them this morning. Number one, As the Lord proclaims prophetically his work, there's no doubt that he's proclaiming the work of a saviour. The one who would come to save the people from their sins. The one who would take upon himself sin. And yet the second one, and this is a focus for us this morning. Not only is there a saviour who will come to save, but the means by which he would come to save is that he would come and suffer. He would come and bear our burdens. All of us have gone astray, but he's placed on him the iniquity of us all. Such a contradiction, isn't it? A suffering Savior. And so I want to remind us briefly this morning of this reality of our suffering Savior. One more passage as we set the scene. 1 Corinthians 2.2. If you're very quick, you can turn there. It'll be on the screens and I'll read it to you. This is Paul talking to the Corinthian church and he says this. Just just grab me. He says, I've not come to you with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Just think about that for a moment. He said there's no craftiness, there's no fancy sermons, there's no illustrations from my children or anything else. I've come with one intent, and that is to know Christ Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And yet he goes on, Christ Jesus and Him crucified. See, why crucified? Why not Christ Jesus and Him 
glorified, Christ Jesus and him exalted, Christ Jesus and him resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, obviously, all of those are incredibly important and we'll focus upon the resurrection as we gather on Resurrection Sunday. And Paul elsewhere, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we of all men are to be pitied. It's essential that we remember the resurrection. We can never downplay that at all. And yet here in this passage, he says, but this is my heart amongst you, is that I would never forget Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ as the suffering Savior, as the one who suffered in our place. So why is it for Paul? Why is it for for the Lord as he proclaims and prophesies the work of the Messiah, that it is so important for him to emphasize that we never lose sight of salvation. Yes, of course, but we never lose sight of his suffering, that he came and he suffered and he took upon himself our grief and our pain and our iniquity. And I want us to think that through just very quickly this morning. You know, there is something very confronting about death, yes? I've noticed this just in the natural as we made a decision some uh, five or six years ago now to go and purchase a small hobby farm, thinking in my mind of all the wonderful organic food and all the amazing things we could do. We're going to have a little flock of goats and fresh goat's milk and beautiful goat's cheese and We did indeed get some goats, and we do very much enjoy them. Everybody loves to come to the the local neighborhood petting farm when there's little baby goats. What I didn't factor in is the journey that takes place on the way to the nice goat's cheese and fresh goat's milk that you select from your local supermarket. And in fact, we had a, a season this past year where the whole goat herd got sick, and we ended up losing three of our goats which was, of course, quite sad and confronting for our young children. And at one particular point towards the end of last year, we got a call from our youngest child, her kindergarten teacher. And she said, look, I just want to check that everything's okay at the Baker Farm because we did news in the classroom today. I said, has anyone got something that they're good at? And my youngest came forward in front of the class and she said, well, yes, class, I'm very good at digging holes to dairy bed goats. (laughs) Very dead goats. So someone in the class said, okay, well, what, what does that look like? And she apparently even gave a demonstration. She said, well, the goat falls on the ground. And then me and Daddy, we get the shovel and we dig, we dig, put the goat in the hole. I think the teacher said, okay, class, enough, enough news for one day. But we forget there is a process. I mean, we, as, as part of the journey as well of being out on the land, I had this envision of raising chickens and We've done that too, and then having, you know, fresh meals prepared with homegrown organic chicken, and I think sometimes in your mind you just think of the nice, neatly packaged breast fillets that you pick off the uh, supermarket shelf. So we had some friends of ours come over at one point, and they said, look, we show you how to do the deed so that, you know, when the time comes, you've got a few spare roosters, and I warned my children, I said, look, this is going to be gross and graphic. But they were so fascinated, and the whole time they just stood there with wide open eyes, and I could see they were processing, and they're like, 
wow, this, this is how it works. And, you know, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't nice. There was blood and there was feathers and there was mess and there was noise and I could see them processing, you know. I always thought chicken nuggets just came out of the box. Isn't that how they come? You just <laughs> pop them on the oven tray and... And we do, at times, we lose sight and lose the impact of the process. We go from Palm Sunday of Hosanna to Easter Sunday of celebrating, Hallelujah, He's risen. And we can forget about that week in the middle, a week of lament and grief and anger and betrayal and bleeding and suffering and ultimately of death. In fact, at times we just want to move on as quickly as we can. But yes, death is confronting and I would encourage us that even in the natural and certainly as we come to the death of Christ, it is something that is so needed that we would never lose sight, not only of what Christ has accomplished, but what he has gone through to secure the victory for us. So let me give you three quick realities this morning that I believe we need, we must, we would do well to continually be confronted by as we on this Good Friday remember the cross and the suffering of Jesus Christ. It confronts us, number one, with a recognition. We cannot look at the cross. We cannot see the suffering of a Savior there and not to have this moment of recognition. Number one, of the depravity, of the significance, of the seriousness of sin. See, if there's anything we gloss over in today's society, it's it's sin. It's a bit like my young children as they help themselves to lollies and packs of chips and fruit bars is the thing in our house in the cupboard. And I see them with a mouthful. Did you take a... F- no, no, wasn't me. In fact, they say, but, but I was hungry. I mean, I was hungry. I needed something to eat. I mean, you're on the wrong here. You're depriving me, a young, hungry child of, of food. There's nothing wrong here. I said, well, hang on a sec. There is something wrong because you've done something that I told you not to do. And of course, in far bigger and more serious ways, we gloss over sin thinking, well, it's no big deal. I mean, God probably wants me to have this. He's probably in the wrong preventing me from going down this particular path or that particular path. But when we look at the reality of the suffering and the death of Christ, we can not gloss over and make light of sin because it cost him his life. And from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, as as Adam and Eve first took of that apple, and perhaps they too were like, it's just an apple, it's no big deal. And as the Lord, it says in Genesis, provided for them the skins of an animal, as they heard perhaps the cries of the death of an innocent animal, as they faced that suffering in the natural, as they saw the the blood stains on the ground, as the Lord covered their shame and their nakedness, you cannot convince me that they weren't confronted for the very first time with this connection of sin and death and suffering. Sin cannot be glossed over, and we see that throughout scriptures. We could talk about Abraham on the mountain. We could talk about the whole Levitical sacrificial system, all pointing us towards the moment that one man, even as we see here in 
the garden in agony. Lord, is there any other way? If there is, let's, let's pull up now. Let's go. To, is there any other way? But Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And there was no other way for the price of sin to be paid, for the forgiveness that he desperately desired to offer, to be given to us freely without condition. Everything in Scripture points towards the moment that one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, would die in our place and suffer for us. This thread of redemption unfolded through the Word of God until finally in glory we see the, the great multitudes of saints who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This reality of the depravity, a recognition of the depth of our sin and the depths of His grace and mercy to pay the ultimate price for us. That's number one. It confronts us with a recognition. It also confronts us with this realization of, well, if, if that is indeed the case, there's this depravity of sin, there was no other way. And there's a Savior who has come to pay the price then there is an undeniable realization that He is a God who loves. And we know that because the Bible says it. It says, for God so loved. I mean, that's what begins the whole story. And yet if ever we doubt that love. I know the song says, the Bible tells me so, we go to scriptures, yes. But there's one reality, and I point my kids towards this all the time. If ever you doubt the love of God, just look to the cross. Look at this reality of a God who suffered for you, who took on board your sin, your shame, my sin, and my shame. And you cannot cast your mind to Calvary and not come away without that overwhelming reality of a God who loves you so much. So there's a recognition, there's a realization, and number three, there is a reassurance. There's a recognition of this depravity, this desperate condition, there's a realization of a God who's demonstrated His love. The center point of all the suffering was that God who so loved us that he would come rescue and redeem. What does that do for us? It gives us this incredible reassurance. As he proclaims on the cross, he says what? It is finished. He doesn't say it might be finished or it's partially finished. He says it is finished. He said, let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours be done. And he took that cup and he drank it completely. There's no more that could ever be done. There's no more that could ever be added to what he has now already accomplished. It's complete and it's definite and it is sufficient. We reassure ourselves as we look to the cross. We think, how could this not suffice? A perfect, innocent Savior, the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sins of the world. So here's the truth for us. It doesn't matter how great our sin has been. It matters how great is His salvation. 
doesn't matter how far we've fallen, it matters how far His mercy and grace can reach to rescue and redeem. It doesn't matter how great our depth and the depravity, it matters how great His provision and the price that He has paid. What is the price that He has paid? He's paid the ultimate price. And that's why He proclaims with all authority and with all certainty, it is finished. It is finished. What an assurance, therefore, there is for all who would hear His words and trust in Him. It's an assurance that is built upon the certainty of His sufficiency. The reality of what He has done for us. Reassure your heart this morning that it is finished. So there is and there should always be a recognition. There should be a realization as we look to the cross. And there should be this reality of reassuring our hearts and our lives of resting in the finished work of what he's accomplished. So I just want to get the worship team to come back up. And I want to give us, each and every one of us here, a moment. So if you can, if you're comfortable doing this, I'd encourage you just to turn your attention to the Lord. I'll only take a few moments, but I want to give us just a moment before we rush off to hot cross buns and into the busyness of a, a holiday weekend, the good things that we have before us, to spend a moment in that place of recognizing of realizing and of reassuring. So if you can, just turn your attention to the Lord. I want to pray for us and lead us through this for a few moments. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for the greatness of who you are. We thank you that we stand this side of the cross, this prophesied and proclaimed plan of redemption that we read, written, penned down, not only 600 years before the event, but as your word proclaims, before you even laid the foundations of the earth. Lord, I thank you that before there ever was a sin that you already had in mind and knew the plan of salvation, that you predestined each and every one of us here to receive the adoption, that which you intended, that which was lost as we have fallen short of your glory as sons and daughters of the living God. And I want to pray just in these few moments that we have together, Lord, that there would be a sense you'd help us through your Holy Spirit to recognize, to remember both, Lord, the the lostness, the depravity of sin, the, the brokenness and the, the fallenness that's not only all around us. We all have examples. I'm sure we could bring forward about brokenness in the world, but the lost and the brokenness and the sin that is within us. And I pray at the same time, Lord, that there'd be a recognition of the price that you pay taking that sin and that shame, not just of the world, but our sin and shame upon yourself. 
that by your wounds we might be healed. Thank you, Lord, that there's no sin that's too great, there's no shame that runs too deep. That's beyond the power of your blood to cleanse and to redeem and restore. Father, as we remember and as we recognize, I pray that there be a fresh realization that you are the God who loves, that you so love each and every one of us, that you made a way when there was no way. And Lord, as we remember, as we recognize, as we realize, I pray that there would be a fresh reassurance that that reality of it is finished, that proclamation, that declaration would not be just words on a page, but it would be the very thing that stamps our lives, that recalibrates all that we do, that we live in light of this Savior who has paid in full our debt. And that all that we do and say in the very motivations and thoughts of our hearts would ever be a response to the greatness of your love and your mercy and your grace. I pray these things in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.